Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 14. Can you hear the excitement in my voice? If you can't, you should be able to, because today we have a legendary drummer. We have a rock and roll Hall of Fame member today, Doug Cosmo Clifford from Credence Clearwater Revival will be my guest in just a moment, so please stay tuned. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may be the best-kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos Drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, uh, our guest really needs no introduction, but I'm going to try to do this justice. Doug Clifford is a founding member of Credence Clearwater Revival, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee back in 1993, and truly just a gentleman and was so gracious with his time. Just one of the nice guys in the business. So please help me welcome a very special guest to the drum shuffle Doug Clifford of Credence Clearwater Revival. Doug, welcome to the Drum Shuffle. How are you today? Good, Jamie. You? I'm doing just fine. Thanks for asking. I want to thank you so much uh, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. You're our first Rock and Roll Hall of Famer. <laughs> that's, that's, you need more Hall of Famers. Uh, well, I, I tell you what, you know, um, as I was doing a little bit of research, which, you know, I, I do a lot of research on our guests and I didn't have to do a whole lot on you um, simply because, you know, the, the music that you've been a part of over the years is just so timeless. And unless you've been under a log for the last 50 years, you know all about CCR, right? I mean, it's just ubiquitous out there. Well, you, you, I don't know if you know all about it. Uh, I don't know all about it. So <laughs> I don't know that there are too many people that know all about it, but it, it certainly is uh, something that is uh, familiar to a lot of people. Let's put it that way. Well, I mean, you've just been a part of such great rock and roll for so many years. Um, and what we typically like to do is kind of go back to the beginning. Um, you were a young man when Credence formed and there were actually a couple of groups prior to that. And I think you were probably 14, 15 years old when you first started playing with the Fogarty brothers. Is that right? Uh, probably 13. 
definitely uh, goes way back. You know, uh, not, those were the days that rock, rock and roll really got started, and it was in its infant stages. And uh, it's a good time to, to, you know, to get into a genre is at the beginning of it, and uh, and try and learn as much as you can. And uh, that's what we did. Well, and you know, it's it's my understanding, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but there were a couple of predecessor bands to CCR. Um, I, I think uh, the Blue Velvets and the Gollywogs. Now, were you part of both of those groups as well? Yes, I was. So, and the Gollywogs actually, the the uh, the lineup was was Credence. It was the same members of Credence. We just got put into a box with a, a funky name from a manager who was very weird. <laughs> we hated it. <laughs> well, sure. Now, you know, and here's the thing that, that blew my mind, you know, and, and I own all the CCR records, obviously. And, you know, I, I often, you know, jokingly say I've probably played Credence songs as much as the guys in Credence have played Credence songs. You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've just been playing the music for so many years in different bands. But when I started looking at release dates, for the CCR records, um, you know, just some stats. You guys uh, had, you know, nine top five singles, 12 top 40 singles, seven studio albums, six of which were in the top 20, five that were in the top 10. And the first six albums were released over a period of 30 months. I mean, I can't believe... <laughs> How much great music came out in such a short, short period of time? Well, that 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 is really true, and I I call this the Roman candle of rock and roll. I mean, you know, you know, and it's and it's over. So, uh, yeah, the the the, the pace was, uh, shall we say, rapid and. Uh, uh, not only did we record uh, those records, but uh, learn or jam and, and uh, uh, rehearse those records and, and then record them, but we also toured behind them. So we were busy boys. Well, there's no doubt about it because, you know, the first, um, you know, three records came out within a period of like 13 months. Um, which is just unbelievable. Now, I know it was a different time, you know, back in the late 60s, you know, guys would release a record, you know, every eight or nine months and then tour for, you know, six months and then go back into the studio. But you guys literally, you know, all of these huge records came out over the course of just a couple of years with all those songs on them. So were they truly different recording sessions or was it just kind of a string of songs that were released at different times? Well, there was a little bit of both of the, of the you know, we, when we uh, went into the studio, we went in with this, the, uh, the album uh, and no other songs. In other words, a lot of, a lot of groups of go in and cut 15 tracks and then pick the best 10. We had the album already planned out. Uh, we never we never left anything in the can for the record company to uh, put out later. Uh, you know, if you're, you're going to take 
your best shot, uh, you want to do that and, and not have the, you know, the second team uh, sitting in the vault somewhere and then all of a sudden uh, after you're, you're uh, gone and, and uh, uh, heading down the road, uh, the label puts something out that you didn't want to put out yourself. So that's kind of how we did it. So you all were really keeping complete control of the catalog, even even in the early days, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't leave anything in the can. We knew exactly what we were going to do when we got into the studio, what songs we were going to do. We had rehearsed them. That was one of the things that we did do is we rehearsed our butts off and made sure that the material was ready. We had more number one takes than anybody I know because we were so ready to play those and get on with the next record. So these recording sessions for the for the different records, you know, the self-titled, uh, you know, Bayou Country, Green River, uh, Willie and the Poor Boys, um, you know, your 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 album, Cosmos Factory, you know, they, they named one after you. Um, so really, you guys were going into the studio and, and getting these things done in what kind of time period? Were you in the studio for a week, a month? Well, it didn't take us very long. I would say two weeks from uh, going in and starting to cut tracks to having a you know a finished record, and uh, uh, it, it was a pretty quick uh, time pace. But we knew we were so rehearsed, we knew exactly what we were doing. And as I say, we had a lot of number one takes. Uh, and when you get get it on the first take, uh, you're and you're into the second record uh, or a second song, uh, if you will. Uh, you know, you're 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 moving pretty fast. Yeah, I mean it. It blows my mind. You know, I mean it really does for those songs and that music to have come along that quickly. Now, were you guys recording? Um, most of this live uh, in, in the room together and just doing vocal overdubs or was there some production? Yeah. That's what we did. We cut them live and, uh, and then the vocals were done later. Uh, and uh, it, it, that's part of the, that's part of the, uh, the allure because, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's so different now. I mean, you have pro tools and you have all these things that if you, you make a mistake, loops, you know, <laughs> You play two to four bar loops, you know, and all you have to do is spend about 20 seconds uh, laying, the, laying the, the loop down and then there's your track. It's different. You know, we came out of the bars, uh, did it the old fashioned ways, six nights a week, five sets a night. Um, and uh, that's how you get your chops. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's just amazing. Uh, you know, I, I mean, I keep using that word and, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, but it's amazing that all of this timeless music was put together that quickly um, and, and played live. You know, I mean, now, like you said, within the age of Pro Tools, you don't even have to sing the song very well. I mean, you know, with auto tune and, <laughs> and all that stuff, I mean, you, you don't really have to be a great performer. So it was very different in those days. Well, 
no question about it. It was it was honest. You had to be a, a, a musician. You had to be able to, you know, to uh, um, play your parts. And and the drums were, were the one instrument that you couldn't punch in. So, you know, uh, somebody has a, a a couple of bloops or you know a section that they 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 think that they should uh, have played better. Uh, they could do that, but uh, the drums punching in all those mics in, in the old days, you couldn't do it. So uh, I had to have play my track, for, you know, from from beginning to end, uh, and uh, no no room for error. So uh, there there was that was probably the the. Uh, the only real pressure I felt in the studio was, you know, I got to be on and uh, going going along and you're about three quarters <laughs> the, the track and you're going, this sounded pretty good. And then, uh, you, you, then you get a hold of yourself and say, don't think about anything right now. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Just play. Yeah, but because as soon as you start feeling comfortable in the take or whatever, you're gonna you know click a a rim or or something. It's good. Yeah, I, I understand. It'll it'll fall apart on you if you overthink it for sure. Um. So, Doug, let me let me ask this now. A lot of people don't realize this. I mean, some people do, but a lot of people don't. In this period of time between, you know, summer of 68 and, you know, uh, summer of 1970, you guys have these five records that are all, you know, top 10 albums, um, you know, going all the way up to like the end of 1970. But you guys played uh, a fairly important little show during that time span called Woodstock. We certainly did. You know, and a lot of people go, no, Credence didn't play Woodstock. And yes, you guys were absolutely on the bill at Woodstock. Tell me a little bit about that. Do you do you remember much of it? <laughs> oh, I remember every, every bit of it. Uh, uh, we uh, quite honestly, uh, if we hadn't played there, I don't think that there would have been a Woodstock. Uh, that, that that sounds like a pretty wild statement, but let, let me explain it to you. Uh, the, the the people that were putting it on were were more like hippies than 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 promoters, and uh, uh, so we liked the idea of what they were doing, but we we questioned their ability to <laughs> to do it. And and of course, it wasn't supposed to be four hundred thousand people. It was supposed to be around, you know, between fifty and and maybe maybe a hundred thousand, uh, but uh, certainly not what it what it ended up being. So all the, all the big acts were sitting on the fence, waiting for somebody big to 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 go on and uh, cement cement the, the the gig so nobody did it and finally you know we thought what the hell you know it uh, it, it could be an interesting uh, event so uh, once we said we would do it then all the big guys jumped in i mean it was, it was, there was like a rush for the door and a, and a fire behind you you know it was it was classic and uh, so had we said no i, I don't think that uh, the 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 billing would have been as fantastic as it was and I don't think that would have drawn the interest of uh, hundreds of thousands of people to, to leave their cars on the road and, and walk to this to the, to the event so it was really CCR that that gave the credibility to the to the festival by by being the first kind of name act to book it 
Yes, exactly that. Then, uh, as you say, most people don't realize we played there because we weren't in the movie. And that was a huge mistake. Uh, we, we wanted to be, definitely to be in the movie. And uh, John said no. And he said, we're already number one. We don't need it. No, that's really not the way to think about things like that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that's that's what happened. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. And uh, 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 it's always been a, a burr in my, in my side. But, uh, you know, historically, it was terrific. Uh, it was you'll you'll never see anything like it again because excuse me you have all these people in the worst of conditions it's wet cold rainy uh, there's no potable water uh food good luck uh so people just shared with strangers uh everybody decided you know there you know it was peace love and music that was the the the, the mantra for for Woodstock and uh, that was the title of of the show and it, it, and it turned out to be true and uh, it was you could feel the energy there uh everyone was having fun concentrating on that as best they could uh under the conditions uh, and uh lack of shelter and so forth so uh then the 25th anniversary they had everything there in, in abundance and the crowd rioted and burned the stage down and they had to stop the show so <laughs> yeah Woodstock was real yeah, well it, and it certainly was and i mean i think it was such a seminal moment in the history of of music and society. I mean, quite honestly, it was yes. just, it was this touchstone where everything changed and you could look at it as before Woodstock and after Woodstock, you know, it was right. kind of that moment. And, you know, I can remember, you know, 25 years ago being in high school, you know, sitting in class and I argued with a guy for two hours, CCR played Woodstock, man. And he was like, no, they didn't. They're, you know, they're not in the movie. And, you know, I never right. knew that. <laughs> I never knew that John, you know, said, no, we don't want to be in the movie. I knew you guys were there, you know? Um, yeah. So um, we're coming up, you know, as we record this, it's 2018. Next year will be the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Has, That's right. Has anybody at all reached out to anybody in the CCR camp about doing something around that or no? Uh, not, not as far as I know. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I haven't, I haven't heard anything. So who knows, uh, what is going on or what will go on there. So I, I, I have no information. Okay. Well, you know, and, you know, I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole of, is there ever going to be a full, you know, CCR reunion? First of all, you know, um, I, that has been covered and that's certainly not something that, that I want to go into. We would all love to see it as fans. And, and I've heard the statement that there are people that would pay any amount of money and buy a plane ticket to any location on earth to see it. And I'm just going to leave it at this. I hope it happens someday. Um, so it would be cool if it were at the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. If, if some promoter out there is listening to this, put it together. Uh, let's make it happen, right? <laughs> well, uh, I, I won't touch that one either. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Uh, that's fair. Now, Doug, after, you know, this kind of, 
whirlwind that was, you know, kind of that, you know, four or five year period that you guys were just the the biggest band on earth. You know, as you said, your own words, you were the Roman candle of rock and roll. When the band really stopped playing and, and releasing music, you know, a lot of people, I, I guess, don't realize you stayed very involved in the music industry. Tell us a little bit about what happened right after CCR for Doug Clifford. Well, uh, Stu Cook and I and uh, Russ Gary, who was the engineer on uh, Green River album through the the rest of the studio albums, and I believe well, live in Europe as well, uh, uh, started a company, a production company, and uh, in, in the factory, in Cosmos Factory. And uh, we would uh, go out and uh, uh, find people that we wanted to work with, either locals or other other named people, and uh, produce records. And uh, uh, my involvement was uh, uh, Doug Somm from Sir Douglas Quintet, probably the most talented guy I've ever worked with. I mean, he he was uh, he, he could do it all, and do, you, know, you could hand him an instrument that he'd never seen before, and he he could play it. I don't know how he did it. And he was soulful, but he was also uh, just uh, a, a, had so much energy that it was hard to keep him focused on one thing at one time. You know, you're in the middle of an album. He says, "You know, geez, I, I want to get my blues band back together again." You know, oh, okay, that's great. But let's finish this. Let's finish this record. <laughs> I did three albums with uh, with Doug. Uh, two of them I produced, and I uh, played. You know, I played drums on all of them, of course. Uh, played uh, one that I didn't produce uh, in Scandinavia, and it had a number one single in Sweden called Meet Me in Stockholm, baby. So uh, I toured uh, behind that in, 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 in Europe, and uh, I toured a little bit behind uh, the, the other two albums that I uh, worked on or pr- produced for, you know, to try and get uh, help with the uh, promoting of those records. Uh, we did, Stu and I did a, a band called the Don Harrison Band. We did two albums for Atlantic with that project. Uh, I also produced uh, folk artist Mark Spolstra uh, and uh, my, got my, my dear friend Donald Deck done, one of the best bass players that, that's ever played bass on the planet. Bless his heart. He's, uh, he's not with us anymore, but uh, trying something a little different, uh, that kind of rhythm section with a folk artist, and there was some interesting stuff, but it didn't get promoted very well by by the label, so that, that turned out to not be a, an entity. But artistically, I thought it was a, a fun record, and and uh, Mark really did. He, you know, he, he, we energized him. He was kind of a laid back dude. <laughs> we came in there, <laughs> laid some pretty good tracks down for him. Uh, then of course. Uh, uh, I did a lot of write, songwriting, and I'm going through a lot of that material right now. As a matter of fact, I've, I've found uh, some th- tapes that were even up to 45 years old, and uh, uh, had to what you can call bake those things, and then bring them down to, to digital to, to save them. And uh, we're going through that process, and I've got a lot of songs, uh, co-writes by 
some really good writers, and then also some songs that I just wrote 100% by myself. So I, I was doing that, uh, you know, it's kind of just a nice creative uh, binge there for several years. So, you know, I, I was uh, still involved. And then in, in 1995, uh, Stu Cook and I started Re Creedence Clearwater Revisited. That project's still going and, and it's 23rd year, 23rd or 24th, I can't remember. But uh, anything over 20, you can't remember anyway. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, at my age, it's amazing I can remember anything over 10. So. Um, oh, come on. You just told me all about Woodstock. That, that's going on 50 <laughs> years ago. You may be the only person that was at Woodstock that remembers it. <laughs> well, you know, here's back to Woodstock. I mean, uh, I don't know how we did it. I, I, I Hats off to our crew, you know, because the band came in separately uh, and uh, we've been uh, doing uh, the Andy Williams special uh, television special in, in L.A., and they kept having problems uh, with uh, technical problems and other other things, and we kept changing our flight, changing our flight, flight. Finally, we said, you guys better get it this time, because we, we've got to now take a red-eye to, to New York to play this this gig called Woodstock. So uh, we got it, and there was still some weird thing that happened in the middle of the track, but they had to use it, and uh, off we went. So we were going to, you know, once we got on the ground in New York, they said, all your travel plans from here out have changed because you can't drive in. Uh, the roads are jammed with cars that were have been deserted by people going to the concert because of the lines were so long. So they just left their cars on the road and walked in. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. And we're, we're kind of going, what? Uh, nothing like this has ever happened. And uh, we kept, you know, the, the, the suspense kept growing. And we finally, uh, when we got as close as we could, took a little two-man helicopter with three men in it. Uh, it was a little weird. Uh, I had my uh, left cheek on uh, the seat that uh, John was. He was sitting in the middle. I'm, I've got my right foot out on the skid, and, and, and the door is open. So I'm holding the door with my right hand up against my leg so it won't, wouldn't flap in the wind and get <laughs> really weird. And then I'm holding on to the seat belt uh, that John was wearing, so I, you know, could keep upright in the helicopter. And uh, so it was, it was like a, a scene from a movie. You know, it was sunset, and uh, we're coming up, and we're hearing all these these rumors, and it's starting to build. And it, you know, we're just seconds away from coming up over the over little hill to see the crowd for the first time, and. As we, we came up, uh, it was beautiful sunset. Uh, it wasn't raining at that point. And we looked, and uh, we had played a lot of pop festivals, 100,000, 150,000 people. Uh, and we had a pretty good idea what that number of people looked like. And when we came up, we said, oh, my God, it's true. And I said, this is a patchwork quilt of humanity. And the colors of it uh, almost had a pattern to it. You know, it was just... Uh, a one-in-a-lifetime experience. I mean, there, there it was, and it just I, my heart started pounding. I got uh, my, my the hair on my arm stood up. I just went, "Wow!" You know, I better, I better think of, about holding on a little bit tighter here. I'm, I, I'm liable to fall out of this thing, but this is spectacular. Uh, 
And so we got in that way, and, and as we landed out of a, a third-story window, of, uh, I think it was a hotel or a motel, but anyway, a building near the landing site for the helicopter, inside the fence was uh, Joan Baez and Judy Collins waving at us in the helicopter. I mean, I went, this is crazy. Yeah, I mean, what else can you say? And I mean, at this time, you're what, 21, 22 years old. I mean, you're you're a young guy in 69, right? I mean, uh, it, I was 20, I was 24, 24. OK, Big so, difference. Huh? <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I you know, I can only compare it to where I've been, you know, and I've been in some, you know, fairly successful bands and probably the the biggest crowd we ever got in front of was, you know, 10 or 12,000 people at a festival or something like that. I mean, I just can't imagine as 24 years old, you know, you guys have got a couple of records out and you're getting ready to play in front of a half a million people. You know, what what, do, what does somebody say to you when you walk out on that stage? Good luck. Don't screw up. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, what do you say? Well, then nobody said anything about getting onto the stage because we were uh, we were late getting on for a couple of reasons: weather on and off, uh, rain and the rain on electronics not a good combination. And then the Grateful Dead went over the the, the allotted amount of time by a, a double, you know. And they, <laughs> Say they did it a ain't 45 so. Forty-five minute version of "Turn On Your Love Light." And I'm just going, man, this is the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Please stop it, you know. Uh, the, the, needless to say, the boys and, and the dead had been out uh, aciding up pretty, pretty, pretty heavy. And uh, but you know that's that's what they did, and that was their their thing. And uh, but we were anxious to get going because we wanted to also get the hell out of there because we had a, a gig the next day in New Jersey and we had never missed a gig. So we're 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 planning that. But how the the crew got the the equipment, and I I don't know to this day. I do not know how they did it and i do not know how they got it out uh it was just an unbelievable mud up to your ankle and you know all all credit to them they got no sleep for at least 24 hours straight and uh and did a terrific job we got on it like uh one or between one and three in the morning and it was pitch black and only a few lights were working uh on the stage and uh you know, some of some of the gear wasn't working, and it was, you know, uh, you're looking out, and you you remember all those people when you're in the helicopter, and now you can't see anything <laughs> beyond the stage. It's so dark; it was ominous. And I'm going, Jesus, you know, is a, is a monster going to come out of the sky and 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 eat us up right on the stage? And wouldn't no one would know because <laughs> it's pitch black out here. Anyway, make a long story short, we were able to get our set done, and people liked it, and uh, then we got into let's get out of here mode. Sure. Well, I mean, and, you know, you said, I don't know how the crew got the gear where it needed to be. And and I know, you know, some of our listeners might be saying, you know, why didn't they just call a backline company? I, you know, there, there was no such thing in 1969, no. you know? There was no such and in fact, the Revisited Project was is probably the band that uh, uh, made that concept, put that concept to work uh, to the fullest extent, and actually got them them rolling. We we started with with it. We still do use the same thing. I bring my cymbals and my foot pedal, and uh, 
that's it. And uh, everything else is backlined in. And a lot of backline companies uh, early on started bought just bought uh, equipment, for the the exact same kit that uh, I would play and the amps and and whatnot because they knew that we we would use that equipment. And uh, when we would do bus runs, still, when we do a bus run, we take a trailer with us and we go to studio instrument rentals and rent the gear and, and haul it. And so we carry our own gear or their gear uh, behind us on a trailer and use the same stuff every night. But we've done this all over the world. Some of the third world countries, <laughs> Some of the kits I played were uh, interesting, shall we say. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it all worked, and uh, we, we've uh, had tremendous success with it. It's a great concept that allows you freedom to play anywhere. Uh, if you're carrying your own gear, the, the circle uh, that you can operate within is uh, much smaller than uh, unlimited uh, sp- uh, you know, space when you backline. Yeah, well, especially for for drummers, you know, I mean, I know that the guys that do a lot of stuff in, you know, Europe, uh, some of the clinicians, you know, that I'm thinking of, they keep a kit in Europe, you know, so that they yeah. don't have to pay that huge cartage price to, to get a full drum set across the ocean. You know, it costs a lot of money right. to ship a drum set overseas. Well, um, one of the, one of the things that m- makes it work for us is I have a very simple kit. <laughs> yeah, well, well I've, I, right. I've only added two things to my kit since uh, you know we recorded all the records and played uh, all, all the uh, concerts back in the day. Uh, I had a four-piece drum set. Now I have a five-piece. I put a middle tom in. Uh, just uh, it just gives you a better stereo uh, uh, shot at you know your your uh, your toms, and then I've added another crash symbol. I only had one crash symbol, and uh, and uh, and I use my ride a lot as a crash. So that's a big deep crash, but you hear it especially. I would say uh, in in Born on the Bayou, you can you hear it. I I hit a lot of beats, a lot of crashes on on the back beats. I've always done it, and uh, that's kind of one of my signature things. And then I have 18-inch hi-hats uh, that give me a, a sort of another unique sound from from that perspective. So uh, I started doing that in in '69, uh, uh, and it's worked for me uh, very well. Well, you know, I, I jokingly say, you know, the 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 in vogue thing am, amongst drummers now is to have, you know, 15, 16 inch hi hats. And I said, you know, Doug Clifford was doing this stuff before you were born, dude. <laughs> you know, I mean, things are small. man. <laughs> y- y- yeah. And, you know, everybody talks about that all the time. They can't believe how big hi hat symbols have gotten. And I was like, man, you know, CCR was doing this stuff way back when. Now, talking about gear, here's something that I've always wanted to ask you. All those, um, you know, kits and symbols and everything that you had that you played these played on these legendary records. Do you still have all that stuff in storage someplace? Well, I have I have one set, uh, actually one and, and, and some parts of another, a second set. But uh, and it's in the uh, Musical Instrument Museum in uh, Phoenix, Arizona. 
uh, and it's a Camco kit. Uh, that's, I was one of the first guys to use Camco and, uh, and Paiste symbols. I still have a, I'm the, uh, longest, uh, endorsee of, uh, uh, of, uh, at Paiste. I've been with them since 1969. So, uh, wow. they've been great for, to me and, 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 uh, uh, I love what they, you know, what they I still love the symbols. So it's all part of the sound. And, uh, you know, I had such a simple kit, but I, the uh, kit that I have, the Camco kit in the uh, museum in Scottsdale, is on on the same podium with John Lennon's piano that he wrote Imagine with. So I'm sitting there l- looking at it, and, uh, you know, there behind me is this beat-up cigarette burn upright that, you know, you would sell for 200 bucks just to get it out of your garage. Just chills on my my uh, arm, and I thank the the, the folks at, at the museum for uh, honoring me uh, to to share that that uh, little podium there with uh, with John Lennon. It's a goosebump time for 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 me. Yeah, for sure. Well, between the two of you, a lot of good music written on both of those instruments. I would say, um, you know. Something else that I've always wanted to ask, you know, your drum sound on all of the CCR stuff was was very particular and it was a little bit different than the other things that was coming out at the time. But especially on Fortunate Son, I've always wanted to ask the question, did you guys do anything just completely crazy when you were tracking that song? Because it's just so the drums were so. Um, deep and out front on that track, which was a big departure from things that were coming out at that time. Was that something that just accidentally happened, or were you aiming for that? Well, we were we were aiming for it. it, it it's you know, it opens up with the drums, and uh, uh, the drums are featured uh, quite quite nicely on on, on the intro, and and it's just very you know, again, a simple. Play it, you know. Play it simple, stupid, uh, and uh, uh, that's that's what we did. But it was it was in, in its simplicity, it, it created the the power. Uh, the same thing happened with with Susan Q. Uh, it, it was a rockabilly song, you know, twangy and, and eighth notes uh, on the on the hi hat. Sure. And uh, we played it, that one in the bars. And when you're playing five sets a night. Uh, your material is a tough thing, and you have little tricks that you do to be able to have enough material to, to get through a, a show. First and foremost, you're not going to have the same audience in a five-hour period, so you can get a little leeway there and play a couple of songs, uh, you know, a couple of times. Louis, Louis, like you said, you played our, our stuff as much as we have. Well, we I played Louis, Louis as much as the, <laughs> those cats did, for sure, uh, back in the day, uh, you know, two, three, four times a night, but that was by request so what we, we would do is we'd have little pieces of paper in, in our pocket and then when we were taking a break we'd drop them on the stage when we came back we'd, we'd pick them up and they would be blank we'd look at, at them and say oh someone's requested walking the dog yeah so, <laughs> that was another one we liked so uh, those are some of the tricks but uh, when I went to uh, the quarter notes uh, on the B, on on the uh, ride symbol on the uh, 
with Susie Q, it created a huge space. It opened that song up, so the backbeat, and then the in-betweens, the eighth notes in-between, I played on the kick, so it just chugs like a, like a freight train. And, 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 but if I was playing eighth notes, it, it wouldn't, wouldn't have the same effect. And that, that song has the drums fade in, at the beginning by themselves and fade out by itself at the end. So uh, it, it became, uh, that became three songs, took up the space of three songs in the clubs because it was a, it became a dance tune and that's what the, the people wanted. They wanted songs they could dance to. So uh, it changed. We were trying to find ways to stretch the material that we already had and that, that one ended up being three times what it what it was uh, as a rockabilly tune. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's again timeless, and and it's a touchstone drum beat for all of us. I mean, everybody, you know, when they start out, or at least in in my era, you know, it was you started out, uh, you know, playing CCR stuff. Uh, you know, if you were on the you know the heavier diet maybe acdc you know i mean it's just the stuff that that drummers grow up with and and it's you know a, a great piece of recording um now before we run out of time i also want to ask you know and and i would be remiss if i didn't ask who were the guys that that you were influenced by you know as you were coming up mm-hmm. were you listening to to the early rock and rolls you know guys like dj fontana or or who yeah. were some of your influences well he was certainly one of them i have a, a pair of his drumsticks in my studio on the wall uh framed wow. uh uh but the, the the mentor and guy that i personally knew and was a friend and uh uh, one of the best ever, uh, probably most unsung uh, uh, drummer for what what he did was Al Jackson Jr. from Booker T and the MGs, and of course Booker T and the MGs with a house band for Stack. So yeah. uh, most people just know that they did Green Onions and that that's it, but they did way more than that. They played on all the Otis Redding stuff, all the Sam and Dave stuff. Uh, they they even played some stuff for Aretha Franklin, even though she was on Atlantic. Uh, Jerry Wexler brought, brought that rhythm section in. Duck Down and, and Steve Cropper uh, was a co-writer on just about every Otis Redding song there was and a lot of the Sam and Dave stuff. So he really was active and, and uh, had a huge publishing uh, uh, thing going, and uh, but those guys were were the heart and soul of Stax Records and all the great stuff that came out of there. And uh, the Marquis were the horn section when they when they uh, had, a, had a horn section in the songs. Uh, uh, Earl Palmer, uh, you know, on and on and on. Um, just great cats. And Gene Krupa was the reason why I became a drummer. And uh, I saw a TV special with him, and I, I was buying records and loved rock and roll, and just just didn't know what what uh, uh, instrument I was going to play. And then back in those days, there was a lot of saxophones going on and and, and rock and roll, and I was thinking about playing the sax. Boy, I'm glad I didn't do that. <laughs> And well, it might have saved your back a little. You know what I, <laughs> I mean? People, yeah, I do have, I have back problems. Well, I, I mean, you know, I, I jokingly say it all the time. I, sometimes I'll have, you know, 
people that I've known forever, they'll say, oh, you know, my kid's thinking about being a drummer. What advice do you have? And I say, take up harmonica. You know, I mean, (laughs) that's that's always kind of my standing joke. Um, Doug, before we run out of time here, I want to be respectful of your time. A couple other things that I'm really curious about, you know, growing up, I just assumed, you know, before I did the research, I just assumed that that all of you guys were from, you know, Louisiana or or Mississippi or, or something like that. How did a bunch of guys from California become kind of the quintessential you know, rock and roll swamp boogie band. Is it just what you grew up listening to, or is that just kind of how the music organically moved to, you know, stuff like Born on the Bayou, et cetera? Yeah. Well, it was very specific. Uh, it, the record collections that we had, and this is what the first day I met Stu Cook was in the homeroom in the seventh grade. The letter C, Cook and Clifford, that's how I met him. We were talking, and in those days you had leather jackets and greasy hair, you know, and the James Dean look and all that. It was just kind of what was happening was part of the rock and roll look. And and anyway, we were talking, and then the subject of music came up, and that, that of course, was rock and roll. And I, I told them I was, was buying, had been buying records, for, you know, since I was nine years old. And uh, the first one I bought was uh, uh, Roll With Me Henry by Etta James, a oh, nine-year-old. Wow. Yeah. Buying that. And then the second record I, I bought was Bo Diddley by Bo Diddley. And that, you know, that jungle rhythm, that tom-tom rhythm was so captivating. And that, that, that stayed with me for a long time, but I didn't think of playing drums uh, specifically. Uh, so anyway, I saw a special with Gene Krupa uh, on, on TV, and I went, wow, that's what I want to do. And he had movie star looks, you know, the white coat, sport coat, the black greasy hair. He looked like a movie star. And he took the drummer out of the the, the dark, uh, uh, unlit part of the stage, and the, the band leader saying, just play basic stuff, don't do anything. Uh, you know, and the Gene comes out and you know, brought solos in and that were very musical solos. Uh, and it's very basic and simple. And then Buddy Rich came in playing, you know, rocket ship speed drum stuff. And, you know, so, yeah. uh, it, Gene Krupa opened the door for a lot of guys back in the big band era. So uh, he became uh, a focal point for me, uh, but I wanted to be a rock and roll drummer. Yeah, for sure. Well, and certainly that dream came true. And, you know, I mean, it's just been the catalog speaks for itself. Now, I I want to kind of wrap up on this note with Credence Clearwater Revisited. You guys are out this year uh, and I want to make sure our listeners know uh, that, you know, to go grab a ticket and come see you guys, because, you know, you and Stu are still you know, I I would argue one of the great rhythm sections of all time in any genre of music, not just rock and roll. I mean, you guys have played together for so long, but, you, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just like you must have some just soul connection with Stu. I mean, you guys can probably read each other from a mile away, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's riding the bike, uh, all those things you say, you know, they're still... 
there's still passion in in in, in those grooves, and and uh, well, the day that goes away, uh, uh, I'll be doing something else. But uh, we're still rocking and uh, having fun. That's the main thing, and. Uh, Bringing this music back, we, you know, John wasn't even playing the the songs when we started this project. We wanted to, and, and you know, inject the the live side of of what we did uh, to an, uh, audiences that may not have even been born. We have three generations of fans now. We have more younger fans than older fans, and and it's. Uh, uh, just terrific to, to to see it, and they younger and younger they they come. I I see a fourth generation. I call them single visitors, seven, eight, nine year olds singing the songs, and uh, they're with their maybe their grandpa and their dad, and that. So three generations standing that they're all digging the same music, but they're you know they're 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 worlds apart. If uh, once you you separate them, that love of the same music. Because they're, you know, they're they're young in the middle and at, at the end. So uh, it, it's a remarkable thing in a pop medium. I think it's a, the, the ultimate test is the test of time. Well, your music will live on for generations to come. I know that for a fact, and it's it's got to be a good feeling to know that you were a part of that, and that and that the songs. You know, I keep using the word they're truly timeless. I mean. You put on Green River first thing in the morning and listen to it, um, you know, and it's still as cool as it was when it came out in the 60s. You know, I mean, it just it just is. Um, well, uh, it, it's, it, it is a, a, something I, 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 I think about and, and, and I just shake my head and go, you know, lucky me. I, I mean, holy crap uh, to have exactly what you just described. Uh, as a reality, and uh, to me, that's surreal. <laughs> it's, 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 uh, it's, you know, it's, I'm honored and humbled by it, and uh, to know that we've affected the lives of millions of people, millions of people, in a positive way, and they, that our our music will always be a part of them and uh, in their heart and, and uh, in their minds uh, uh, probably for the rest of their lives. So uh, that's a, a, a pretty unique thing. And uh, to have a, uh, a legacy of, of music that uh, when you go to a, one of our shows, everything we play is a hit. So uh, it makes it really a lot of fun. You know, the obvious ones, the Proud Marys, the, uh, the Who Will Stop the Rains, uh, Badman Rising, those those people know and expect to hear. But you play play Lodi and uh, some of those those tracks, they, they go, oh, I, I forgot they did that, or I didn't know they did that. You know, and it's it's really cool. Yeah, I mean, I I can only imagine, and you know, uh, Lodi, one of my favorites personally. Um, Doug, one last question, and we do this with all of our guests here on the Drum Shuffle. Um, we ask our guests for a good piece of advice for other musicians uh, or drummers. Um, just give us your best piece of advice. Well, a couple of pieces of advice. Uh, that's <laughs> even better. Anything, don't sign anything without a good lawyer involved who knows what it is <laughs> and can articulate it back to you in regular language that you understand the uh, enormity or potential enormity, uh, either pro or con, of what you're signing. Uh, 
that's that's the, the 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 legal advice. The other advice is, you know, uh, we came out of the of the, the Bay Area during the the, the whole uh, acid rock thing, and and we stayed. You know, we uh, on the first album we had some a little bit of those uh, elements thrown in, uh, just because we were trying to break into a. a you know, radio in the Bay Area, and and uh, so we we threw a, a sprinkling of a, a little bit of that that sound, not too much, but stay true to yourself. Uh, you know, uh, people told us, our peers told us, we'd never make it playing that that music, uh, and uh, we said, well, this is what we do, and uh, we'll have to see. We were the biggest band that that came out of the Bay Area, so the last laugh is always the the best laugh and and uh but uh you know love what you're doing uh that's the whole that's the whole point i mean we back to an earlier question uh the, the bay area had a big shipyard there uh in richmond california not the next town over from where we grew up and uh, in the world war ii they they needed laborers to build these ships for the war effort. And so a lot of people from the South came out to California and loved it. What they did also do is they brought their music with them. So there were radio stations that played authentic blues, uh, Jimmy Reed and, and uh, Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and the real stuff. Uh, and those artists actually would come into Oakland and play and when, when we could and when, when, when it was uh, okay to do. We would go to sneak in or you know go to go to some of those uh, cats gigs and watch them live you know just a few feet away and just go holy shit this is this, yeah. is, this is cool so and then the real country you know Hank Williams and 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 the lot uh, uh, so we had the the radio to to listen to that was the real stuff. Of, of of the people from the south, and that happened to be the music we liked best. So uh, it, was, it was just a matter of we were playing, and we stuck to. Uh, it took us ten years before we had our first hit from when we started as the Blue Velvets, and then it was Tom. Tom was the one that got us into the studio. Tommy Fogey and the Blue Velvets, and then on Golly Wogs and and uh, and then to Creedence. So uh, we played what we loved and uh, the music that we loved and. Uh, we we said, look, you know, if we don't make it, we don't make it. But we're gonna try it. We think we, you know, there's something here that that uh, is gonna get to, get to people. So uh, we be true to yourself, uh, you know. And the the gollywalk thing was a, a gimmick thing all the way, and it was the manager saying you have to have a gimmick. Well, how about having it some? some some good records yeah. how about that concept you know and so it was humiliating uh, it was it took the fun out of playing wearing these stupid costumes and ridiculous hats and I would play after a gig I'd have a real sore neck because I played with my head down so oh <laughs> <you know>? wow <laughs> sure you, the, the whole idea of music and why we started playing it in the first place was it's fun right you know the, it's still fun you know I, I still love it and 
uh, I still get a, an adrenaline rush, no matter how big a crowd or or, or how how small a crowd. Uh, I still get that adrenaline rush. Born on the Bayou is the first time we play. As soon as that down becomes down, man, I'm I'm in. You know, I'm, I, I can feel it, the hit of that adrenaline, and uh, so that's what that's what keeps me going. Well, that's some great advice. And Doug, um, I can't thank you enough. It has been, you know, just a super honor for me to get to speak with you today. We thank you so much for for coming on the drum shuffle. Um, I could sit here and talk to you for eight hours. I mean, I could make a whole season (laughs) of my show with you. Um, So open invitation. Anytime you have it available in your schedule, we would love to have you back anytime, sir. Uh, I, I would say this. Uh, I'm looking at my watch, and you you only got 25 minutes in. So uh, <laughs> I, I was prepared for for 45 to 55 minutes. So if you want to keep going, we can do that. Well, I I have promised uh, your folks, uh, your manager, that I would keep you no longer than 55 minutes, and my time says 53. So I'm going to be a man <laughs> of my word, so that I can have you back very soon. How's that? Well, that's good. Well, I, I tell you what we will do, uh, Doug. I, I I know that you've got some dates coming up. When you get done, um, you guys are on a big run through, it looks like August, uh, you know, and I know you'll have some other dates. But when you get done with the tour this year, I would like to have you come back and maybe we can go through the CCR discography album by album. I would love to do that with you if you'd be willing to. No problem. Okay, fantastic. We'll we'll put it on our calendar then. Um, so you heard it here for, uh, first, folks. Uh, we're going to have Doug back to do a CCR discography episode. Doug, thank you so much. I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, have a good run out there with Credence Clearwater Revisited. We're going to send some folks your way. I appreciate it, Jamie. I enjoyed myself today. Well, thank you very much. We'll talk to you real soon, Doug. Thank you. Alrighty. That's going to do it for episode number 14 of the Drum Shuffle. Uh, truly uh, an episode to remember, I would say. Um, I want to thank Doug and all of his management team for helping me uh, get this scheduled and, and get him on the phone with me. Um, just truly, again, one of the nice guys in rock and roll. And uh, how about that story about Woodstock? I mean, come on. It doesn't get any better than that. That being said, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen to our show. We truly do appreciate all the support. Keep your emails coming. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is where you can reach us. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. You can find me over at jamieeds.com. I appreciate all of you guys listening each and every week. We've got great guests coming up. Today should be proof that uh, that we're trying really hard to get the folks on that you want to hear from. Uh, So we really do appreciate you tuning in. And as always, until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers. Cheers.